Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Jim Nasser. I'm the CEO at Acor. We're a software development company uh, focused on uh, building solutions in, in healthcare and blockchain. I'm formerly uh, Chief Software Architect at the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, and quite a lot of experience uh, these days building um, healthcare solutions and, and very much thinking about how we can create innovation through computational trust and, and use of blockchains and technologies such as that. I'm delighted to have Nick Lambert, CEO at Doc, um, who's also in this space. I think Doc has been around since 2017 and doing a lot of um, interesting production quality work uh, in, uh, in healthcare and in um, supply chain in pharmaceuticals and, and some other industries. And uh, we're gonna get into this, this area of um, practical usage of, of blockchain um, in healthcare and life sciences and delve into it a little bit. That being said, Nick, uh, welcome. I would love to get a little bit of background introduction from yourself. Great, yeah, thanks for having me on, Jim. Um, yeah, my own background is um, kind of started out uh, really in the technology space, kind of started with, with IBM and, and uh, 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 kind of San Mina SCI on the kind of large scale uh, manufacturing side. Uh, long story short, probably about 2011, I moved into the decentralized space. Uh, so using a decentralized technology to uh, to do different things. In, in the case uh, of the company I was at, uh, then called MadeSafe, it was really about decentralized storage. But what that did for me, Jim, was it really opened my eyes up to the power and also the challenges, of course, of, of decentralized technology. So its ability, as we'll get through today, the ability for it to enable, in, in some cases, for the individual um, or the entity to control their own information without needing to do it through a third party. And of course, there are certain kind of costs and security benefits for, for decentralization. Um, I was there for about seven years as the chief operating officer. And then for the last uh, over three years, I've been the CEO of DOC. Uh, DOC is also in the decentralized space, but very much focused on a decentralized identity, like you said, and also within verifiable credentials, i.e. giving uh, entities and also individuals the ability to make claims or attestations about things that can be instantly verified uh, using kind of uh, basically digital fingerprints to, to prove uh, something to be true. So uh, that has lots of really nice offshoots and use cases. Um, we'll talk a little bit of how they, they affect things like healthcare and pharmaceuticals and supply chain today. So, Excellent, Mike. Really appreciate that. So I do want to maybe just before we get into some of the other uh, topics, just maybe delve a little bit into this decentralized identity space. It is very hot. It's been hot, I think, well, at least on paper for a number of years. And, and one of the, the use cases that um, many people claim is fun, foundational and perhaps fundamental using blockchain. What I really want to know, though, is, is where do you think we are today? What, what, is, what is the practical, the real experience right now, you know, circa 20, uh, middle of 2023? And, you know, what is actually working? What's not? How do you see that? Yeah. Um, in terms of it's, it's a lot of this stuff is actually working. When I say stuff, what I mean by that I should be more specific. What I mean is that the, the technology behind it is, is in place in many cases, not in all cases, but some companies are further along than others. But uh, there's a, a, an awful lot of, of working solutions out there 
Um, but what we haven't really seen yet, I don't think, or, or they're slightly hidden, unless you're looking for them, you don't see them, Jim, is what you know you kind of see is mass adoption, by which I mean like millions and millions of people using decentralized identifiers. Um, th that's something that is we're not seeing. And I think that's not down to the technology not being um, available. It's that it just takes time to educate and to amend existing processes and systems to enable it to work with what already exists. Um, there can be sometimes in different fields, regulatory uh, requirements that need to be fulfilled. Um, uh, and and obviously incumbent uh, companies as well wanting to kind of not want to let the grip go in the market. So there's a, a whole load of things like that that are happening. But I think there's quite a few exciting things that are starting to come along, Jim, that make me think that, you know, we are moving into that era of mass adoption. There's a lot of regulation starting to change within the, the, the EU. And we're starting to see some pretty large companies um, rolling out uh, their own decentralized identity programs for their employees in, in many cases and for their customers. Um, and I think we'll start to see those um, you know, become publicly known. And, and also that's going to turn the tide, I think, uh, through really 2024. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I do share your optimism you know, about um, some of the things that are, I think, triggering uh, perhaps regulation, but also I think recognition by enterprises that they could do decentralized identity and and even if it's internal help, um, you know, with, with some of the friction and inefficiencies that they have, even across you know their own you know kind of uh, landscape, even if not outside of that, and and certainly in, in the world of healthcare, I think the this idea that you could use um, verified credentials and DIDs in a way to help. You know, if nothing else, portability of your patient information yeah. uh, and your health information and allow you to have a little bit more control over how and with whom you share it. I think that that all echoes. Um, let me ask you a question. So I, I know in our experience, you know, also having done some work in, in this um, DIT space, decentralized identity, that one of the challenges is actually around which standards uh, that, that you follow. And, and there's, I think, about or hundred working did uh, methods as example. So, so how do you see interoperability? Like, what what has been your experience with interoperability, and how does that translate to like actual consumer usability from your perspective? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a, a slightly miscold missold concept. I think like we speak to a lot of companies, Jim, and and, and you know uh, we use the W three C, the Web three consortium, uh, the kind of organization started by Sir Tim Berners Lee. And, and that would seem to me to be the, maybe the, the kind of, I'll call it leading standard, but the one that we're most familiar with and, and one we've aligned ourselves with. And I think amongst companies that we speak to in any sector, there is an expectation there that, that if we have this Web3 consortium and, and someone else is, is also working to that standard. Um, Jim, you mentioned that, that you work with, 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 excuse me, with Hedera and your platform. Um, the, there's an expectation that if you were also following that standard, everything would magically work across all our systems. And that's not the case. And so I think what standards are doing is setting the groundwork for the future, um, making sure that they are, it's not the essay that they're interoperable today, but they're not, they're not going to be difficult to get working together. Um, and I think that that's the, the, the real power of standards, but there is still quite a lot more work to be done to really give that true flavor of interoperability 
of, of a user or an organization being able to use multiple different platforms, different blockchains, whatever it might be, and have their identifiers or their credentials work across all of these platforms. That's something that we're still working toward that doesn't exist, but there is a lot of groundwork being laid um, that, that will um, enable that to happen uh, in, in the years ahead. Yeah, uh, I like that. And, and you are, you're very much right. It's just what, what I think of as rubber hits the road is a, is a real problem for uh, developers, builders like us, because uh, just because the standards, you know, may imply that they, they work together, the reality is that the underlying methods and how to implement it don't. And I think that's, yep. that's a lot of the work that you do and that this, the usability where you seems like everything is, is working seamlessly, but, but in reality, there's, uh, you know, a lot of probably a lot of, um, uh, you know, kind of work that you have to do to make that, you know, make that look uh, seamless. It um, is. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think the other thing just quickly, Jim, is that it's if you try and even develop like the, the base standards exist, but they, they take a long time because there's lots of different, very smart people that are all working uh, with different ideas um, about how things should be done. And, and that kind of corralling process takes time. And it's a good thing that it takes time because it means that a lot of the blind spots are all the blind spots are for the most part ironed out. The issue is, of course, like companies like Doc and others, you want to move really quickly. You want to start bringing advanced features to your customer base. And there are not standards for that. So um, because it takes four years or whatever it, it'll take to get there. So you kind of have this where the core is there, um, but then people are running off wanting to do different things at different speeds and, and that can make it uh, a little bit tricky. Uh, but yeah, I think that the building blocks are there for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's really a testament to us all in this space being thinking long to keep building uh, and build the infrastructure for you know, future, you know, I guess, accelerated adoption, because without that, it's, it's just theoretical. That being said, though, let, let's kind of get back to um, the, the larger, you know, I guess, what I think of as a so what for blockchain, and, and in particular, you know, with, with this topic in mind around life sciences. So kind of where do you think, I know, um, you know, having read up, and, and spoken to you uh, before that, that you do some work uh, or the company does around um, supply chain and tracking counterfeit assets and counterfeit medicine, as example. So tell me about kind of where do you think the reality is right there, uh, from your perspective on um, use of blockchain, generally speaking, in, in life sciences, but also specifically around some certain supply chain use cases, including counterfeit medicine. Yeah, I think it's it has the power definitely to to revolutionize um the the way the way the companies work. Um and of course, I mean one of the powers of, of blockchain specifically is it can enable um consortia to work together uh, in a way that that nobody is necessarily controlling all the information. Um you have multiple different entities that each are inputting to effectively a blockchain being a ledger. Uh, a, a kind of a statement of truth, if you like, and the fact that no one, no one company or one entity is able to to control, manage, and amend that that um, that ledger is extremely powerful because it means that there's a there's a data structure there that everyone can trust. Um, and then once you have that in place, there's quite a lot of different things that that you can start to do, and so you can start to have like really kind of traceable supply chains. So we all start to care a lot more about 
um, you know, not only um, where are the medicines being made, but where are the ingredients um, the, and, and the practices being used to obtain those um, uh, the ingredients that make up the pharmaceuticals? Where where are they obtained? What are the the companies supplying that material? Um, like, do they treat their employees and staff fairly and things like that? And so you can start to use uh, public blockchains um, and also ones that, that potentially are controlled by consortia, private ones, that can really help manage that information and let uh, buyers of these pharmaceuticals, whether that's the kind of retail or wholesalers, really understand the complete picture of the, of the supply chain, who made what and when, where was it made, and all of that is put in this blockchain structure that's immutable, meaning it can't be changed or altered. Um, and that adds a lot of, you know, that transparency of the supply chain is, is a very, very powerful thing and enables companies that don't necessarily know each other particularly well to be able to work together in a kind of cohesive manner. Yeah, um, I agree with you. So, so you raised um, an interesting uh, little point that I'd like to maybe delve into a little bit more. Um, you mentioned consortia and, and this idea of using a public blockchain and, and possibly using a maybe more of a private one or perhaps a hybrid where you have certain transactions off, off the chain and, and some transparency and broadcast through the chain. What, what do you guys do? What does, what does Doc do? Where do you see this going? I have personally I have strong opinions, uh, you know, about uh, really very hard uh, leaning into public blockchains and, and using uh, using that transparency, using tokenization, uh, you know, as, as a as a means of uh, as one of the means of transparency. But really interesting in how you guys go about doing this. Yeah, we're very much well. I mean, our mindset is also a public chain um, because I think, and the reason, fundamental reason for that is like today we have this this uh, what I call the Web two world or the kind of existing like centralized world. We very much live in a world of data silos, and um, so so quite often data is is not able to speak to to you know data that exists within different entities, or sometimes silos even exist within the same entity within different departments. And I think by having something like a private chain, where and by private chain, um, meaning that only certain people can join that, and potentially only certain people can actually see the contents of that chain. Um, that is is getting us back into the siloed approach that we have today. And we know that's not a great approach because now we have to try and build things to enable people to get into different you know, data silos. And I think there's a lot of evidence um, that suggests that having a more open data model is, is much more effective. So even looking at other sectors like open banking, where a lot of work has been done to try and enable this data to be known across different banks, well, let's not silo it at all. Let's start at a position where everything is open from the start. So I'm on the same page as you, uh, Jim, that, that we're very much advocates of, of public chains. Um, and when we're talking about public chains, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone can look at a chain and understand exactly who everyone is. Um, that, that's not really what we're talking about here, but it, what it does do is it means that uh, the information is there that, that can be um, uh, that can be analyzed and available for, for companies to, um, to look at. And it really does open us up from, from the silos that we exist in today to a kind of much more kind of sharing environment. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Now, as a little aside, I'm, I know obviously we're in this crypto, larger crypto space. Um, you know, one of the things that, that really, to me, people, we don't necessarily in, in the larger context understand this yet or not, not really articulate well enough. 
but this idea of traceability, you mentioned it several times, you know, in, in the context of your work and, and medicine and, and things like this, but it's extremely powerful. And, and you know, it's something that actually, uh, I think of it as a Hawthorne effect that, and, and the, the net of it basically is that when you, you, when you know you're being watched, you tend to be a good actor. So even yeah. in, as example, even in the scenario of, of uh, F, the FDX implosion and, and the, the whole Sam Bankman-Fried thing and, you know, where did, you know, these billions of dollars of uh, basically crypto go? Their reality is, and we've seen this with, with by the way, with Bitcoin and, and, you know, and even back in the day with, you know, with Silk Road and, and the various other, you know, kind of scams, not that Silk Road was a scam, but, but many scams have happened, is that even if billions of dollars go missing, because of that traceability, because of public, you know, kind of footprint and the thumb uh, thumbnails, it's actually extremely difficult to do anything with that digital, um, with the digital assets, because you're not going to be able to spend that. Uh, and if you want to transfer it, it's traceable. If you want to go and exchange it to like, for instance, US dollar, you have to go to some kind of a centralized exchange that's highly regulated, has uh, KYC and AML that know your customer and anti-money laundering. So even though, you know, there's still a lot of noise about scams and, and for good reason, this traceability angle, the immutability angle, and the fact that it is public and there is not one leader node that can manipulate, you know, like the, the system logs, if you like, that is a huge thing. I think we're really just the beginning of understanding uh, the implications of that. And, and I think this is one of the areas where people like like uh, yourself, myself, and me actually building our audience here in this group can really go and impute this idea to, to the various use cases that we have, maybe a little bit more garden variety, uh, you know, in the context of patient engagement or clinical research or, or patient recruitment, but really emphasize that you can, you can basically show your homework. You, you can show compliance. You can show that you're a good actor. Uh, and and you can do it efficiently. You know, you can actually gain these efficiencies. But anyway, I won't go into too much. It's just an interesting topic. I will ask you though. Now, as you go down this decentralized public path, there, there are definitely some implications around this, right? You know, it's not you know work as usual, or business as usual. So, so tell me about your experiences here. Like, what what are some implications of being of having decentralization like this will impact on collaboration as example, impact on, on efficiency, what have you seen? Yeah, very good question. There's, I suppose there's quite a lot um, to, to probably try and keep the, the answer fairly kind of brief. Um, I think there's some of the, like I guess kind of barriers is maybe part of the, the question there. Uh, maybe tackle that first. It's, it's a kind of, it's a very different mindset as you know, Jim, and you've you probably come over this learning curve of, of course as well, but when you, you're used to things working in a centralized fashion, moving to a decentralized way is, is, uh, feels uncomfortable. Um, so why, you know, as a, as a company, would I be happy moving from a place where I, as a, a you know, pharmaceutical manufacturer, I, I have a garden wall around all my data and I know what's happening and no one else does. And, and, and I feel comfortable with that because that's the way it has worked for many, many years, many decades. And now you're asking those same companies to actually say, share all this with your competitors or, uh, you know, share some of this information with, you know, so that potentially even members of, of, of the public can query this data. They might not necessarily know what it relates to on the chain, but it's, it's publicly there. And that's a, a, a great shift. And that just requires like a lot of education. 
um, and time. So I think that's some of the implications that, that we would see um, that the adoption can be slower because you're trying to educate um, people and then particularly large companies as often exists in the pharmaceutical space, they're then needing to try and amend their uh, known way of working their existing legacy systems with decentralized identifiers and credentials and things that, that they, they're trying to understand. So that can slow things down quite a lot. But if they do go through that, that process, what they get on the other side is something very powerful. So they have a situation where potentially individuals can control their own information. So in a healthcare context, that, that might be their own um, uh, healthcare records. Uh, in some cases, it, it could also mean uh, in the workforce. So it could be pharmaceutical um, uh, practitioners who are able to manage their own continuous workforce, uh, their own educational development. They're not, and then they can take that with, with other um, employers in the future and share their learnings with them and what they've achieved. So you get that 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 power getting passed back to the individual, and also what you get is is, is a lot less. Um, the infrastructure emphasis is not always now with the, the centralized company; it's now spread, and so uh, potentially with multiple companies or even um, you know entities that are actually running the infrastructure that powers all of this stuff. It's not necessarily just down to one company. So you get tremendous efficiencies there, both in terms of cost saving, um, administering those systems as well. So um, yeah, I guess in summary, kind of there are some barriers to adoption, but if they can be overcome, the upside is potentially pretty big. Yeah, I fully agree with you. So you raise an interesting point, and this is this is certainly different as part of this, how do you collaborate and how do you effectively decentralize? How do you see you know, this, uh, I guess, incentivizing different organizations that do work together. Like a good example that comes to my mind, you know, is in, in a world of clinical research is that you have uh, typically sponsors for a particular compound, um, you know, and, and but then they have, you know, they have research organizations that work with, they have uh, clinical research organizations, CROs that do a lot of the work. There's IRBs that do reviews and things. So, so what, what do you think, what's, what's a mechanism, you know, for, you know, for, for I guess, incentivizing in the long term or, or even, frankly, for articulating the costs across these, you know, these different entities that maybe are working together, you know, on, on projects, but not necessarily as, as one, you know, as one entity. What, what, what are some of the ways that you think this Web3 blockchain um, world offers? Yeah, I think, and you touched on it, Jim, when you said about tokenization as well, like that that can be a very powerful thing. And so for, for the uninitiated, tokenization is almost um, representing um, things as tokens like a Bitcoin or something like that. It could be currency, it could, could be a something else. But these tokens uh, can sometimes have a real world value. Um, so you can take it to an exchange and exchange it into another currency and ultimately get it into cash if that's what you want to do. Um, but they can also, but and because of that, they're a great way of passing value around. Um, so you could have a situation where, you know, company A is, is helping with some research for company B. And as a result, um, that, you know, uh, some value is transferred in the form of tokens back from company A, back to company A. Um, that, that can be the types of, of things that could happen there. You could even have someone like maybe verifying information. So maybe there's, there's some kind of um, auditor out there who is, Verifying that 
a, a pharmaceutical supply chain, they can query a blockchain and say, actually, look, I'm, I'm you know, potentially quite happy with the way things have worked here. It's in line with local regulations. And they can make, they can issue out a, a credential to say, look, you know, I'm giving this my gold stamp. And then anyone else that then comes in and decides that they're wanting to use that, that supplier, um, then they can actually know that, look, this has already been verified by, by this other company. I trust them. And because I'm actually using their verification, I can give them some value. So, and, and that value can again transfer across in the form of like tokens, tokenized assets, something like that. And so you get this really nice stream of value transfer that goes right around the system. Another example, Jim, could be where I spoke a little bit earlier about how, you know, there might not be today, you might have a large pharmaceutical company that's running all of this infrastructure themselves, paying for all these servers from AWS, Microsoft, whoever, and maintaining all the system with, with a kind of huge network of, of um, system um, admins and things like that. But imagine their infrastructure was now run, run by like 50 different entities that all contribute and, you know, and they're actually uh, compensated for running this infrastructure on which um, all these solutions are based. They are paid in these tokens for running that infrastructure and they can then decide to take these tokens to somewhere else and exchange that into real world cash and play, pay their employees with it. So I think certainly, I'm not saying it's the only so solution, but certainly having these, you know, kind of token economies that typically exist behind uh, Web3 or blockchain-based systems, um, they're very, very powerful and very, very useful. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And I, to me, again, we could spend an entire session just talking about the so what of a public blockchain versus, you know, some other form, uh, certainly including centralized servers. But, but this idea that you could essentially issue tokens they don't have to be cryptocurrency, but tokens that represent value. And that token itself is transparent. Its movement is transparent. And so it's not just a transaction or, or the, or the if you like, the signature of the entities interacting, but actually the value that's passed. And that is incredibly powerful. That that really, you know, if done correctly, that, that leads to this idea of democratizing access and and, and really even this, this concept of going, uh, doing this kind of work across borders, because, you know, when, when you look at the kind of real life right now, cross-border transactions tend to hit a tremendous amount of, of inefficiencies, if not all that bureaucracy and, and fraud, and, and particularly in certain countries, and, and, uh, and, and obfuscation, right, uh, by various entities, government and and another third party. So, so this really, in many ways, opens up uh, the ability to, to, at the very least, work ethically or, or go down the path of working ethically, if not more efficiently and, and in a way that, that um, helps the underserved to be represented better. So yeah, we could literally speak about this for an hour or more. I did have a question, though. One of the, one of the counterpoints that, that you know, people bring up is, well, you know, if, if you go and do this, you go from an efficient platform, efficient in terms of cost efficiency and, and at least predictable costs on, on say Amazon or Azure or Google Cloud or, or whatever uh, to this blockchain world. Well, you, you're, it's gonna be expensive. The fees are variable. Uh, it, it's extremely energy, high on, on energy consumption um, and things like this. These have come up 
um, you know, I, I, from my perspective as a builder, you know, I think that's highly reductive and, and then a little bit caricature because that's just describing uh, maybe what's happening with, with Bitcoin or, or Ethereum, if you're on the mainnet. And, and, and also, frankly, a little bit old, you know, it's a little bit outdated. But I'm interested in what you guys do, you know, in your world, you know, with this to actually counter both the argument, but also the actual cost involvement in this decentralized approach. And, you know, what 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 chains do you use and, and what's, what's the impact that, that uh, your decisions have in terms of uh, fees, predict, predict, uh, economic viability or predictability of fees, uh, as well as energy consumption? Yeah. Oh, the, yeah, certainly energy consumption is a really interesting one. I think that, I think, I, I don't know what you find, Jim, but sometimes we see that, um, I suppose with any kind of media, that sometimes it's the, it's the bad media that breaks through and people have this, uh, we come across it quite often, a, a very negative aspect of, or a negative opinion about blockchains because of they've kind of read about the Silk Road or something online. And they, they think the whole... Um, the whole ecosystem operates like that. And what I'd actually suggest is that there are bad actors that there definitely are within the Web3 space, but there are probably sufficiently more so in the Web2 space. So I think we just have to assume it's the world and, and some people um, you know, try and scam other people. And that's uh, that, that's true wherever, uh, whatever sector that you're in. I think for us in terms of the, the um, how energy efficient they are, we certainly... Are, are work on a proof of stake blockchain. So, and that's not where Bitcoin, which uh, many people will have heard of proof of work, where you're having computers continually try to use a computation hashing power to solve problems just to prove um, that they are, they've not been corrupted. Um, and we are using to, to a model of staking where actually the nodes that are on the network are there because they have put up the most stake um, they have the biggest skin in the game within that network. And so they're economically incentivized to want to keep that network running as efficiently as possible. And that requires no computational power, really. Um, I think what you do have, though, is you have uh, machines running in different um, locations, but you have that already today with all the data centers that run. Um, and for the most part, a lot of the, the infrastructure behind uh, certainly proof of stake chains like Doc, um, for example, they run also in data centers. So I don't think we're seeing any um, adversely negative uh, impact on energy consumption. Uh, I think it's probably uh, similar. I think proof of work, you could definitely make that, that argument for, but not within proof of stake chains. I think in the cost thing, what I'd say is that People, companies are used to working with, with currency risk all the time. Um, so we, we all deal with it. If you're dealing, working uh, internationally, you, you also obviously need to hold like a basket of different currencies to enable you to do business. And so finance teams have become very familiar with trying to manage, am I holding too many euros? I'm holding too many pounds. Like, you know, if that changes against the dollar, whatever your home currency is, that there's a risk there. Um, and, and, you know, that, that exists. That, that risk can exist with, with tokens. So And the, the solutions are the same as what are employed today. So you can do things like forward buy. Um, you can have futures contracts and things to help uh, mitigate against um, those types of, of risks. So, so I think there are always kind of ways around uh, those types of problems. The other thing that you can also do, uh, Jim, is batch transactions. So everyone has this notion that like in Bitcoin, for example, you get tra seven transactions in a block. I know that's not very much, or Ethereum, it's like 15 
Um, but actually what you can do is batch transactions if you have another chain. So you can have thousands and thousands of transactions sitting um, off to the side and have them referenced with one transaction on, on a main chain. Um, so you still enable all that transparency and visibility that we spoke about earlier that's so valuable. But in actual fact, the footprint that that has on the, on the blockchain is very, very minimal. So that really not only keeps your your efficiency up and your scalability, but it keeps the costs very, very minimal. So there's a lot of different ways that, that we can mitigate. And some of those are, are, are things that companies are already doing today. Yeah, yeah, I love that. that that's actually a very good point, uh, Nick, you know, in terms of batching. And, and there's, there's there are other clever ways of doing this. You know, as example, one of the things that we do is that we use this, what, what has now become a four-letter word, uh, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, uh, you know, as, as an anchor to a data set, like a health data set, um, you know, a, a privacy preserved aggregated health data set, as example. And then, so that obviously is, is many, many different transactions and, and things like this. But then every read, as example, offered that is a, is a specific, um, uh, discreetly traceable additional transaction uh, that goes, you know, in our case, it goes on, on a uh, layer one blockchain uh, called Hedera, but but certainly it could be done on layer twos. I know you guys work with Polygon. It could be done in, a, in aggregate uh, ways. But yeah, absolutely. You can. This is, I think a lot of this come, comes down, like you say, to the nuance of how you actually build it. And, and certainly this idea of if you have tokens, um, you know, you're, you're working across different, different blockchains or different uh, token mechanisms not that different to doing currency swaps and stuff like that. And, and you know, it just needs to, if, if you can disassociate, um, you know, kind of noise from it, you know, it, it's not that different to normal ways of doing business. But with the exception that if done correctly, there is a tremendous amount of transparency, public transparency, um, you know, and, and, and that is different. You know, most, most organizations, uh, yeah, even if you're highly regulated, don't actually, uh, you know, unless it's done as part of an e-discovery, they, they really have a hard time showing transparency. So that's, that's right. Yeah. And it's all auditable. Like you were saying, Jim, it's like, it's not even like if something can be brushed under the carpet because blockchains have this amazing property of being like a append only, that you can only add to them and you can't like, you know, unless something really bad happens, they're broken and they're hacked or whatever. There's been very few instances of that. Like, the information is there and it can't be changed. So anyone at any point can go in and audit that that entire chain or, or the contracts within it. Um, so, so it never goes away. It's got a very, very good kind of memory of an elephant, if you like, and um, where today things can be swept under the carpet. So as you say, if, if we're moving to a world as we should be, where in certain cases we need to be highly regulated to make sure things are done in the right way, blockchain is a really, really good way of doing it. Yeah, no doubt. And, and, you know, that actually is a good segue for us to talk a little, little bit about the regulators and regulations. Obviously, you know, we are in uh, in life sciences, we're, we're in a highly regulated industry, though, um, you know, may, many people think it's by far the most regulated industry. I don't think that's really the case. I think it's not much more regulated, as example, than education even or construction. So, it's, so there's a misnomer that, well, you know, healthcare is so different because it's regulated. It really... I mean, finance is highly regulated. So, so I think that should not be a crutch for us doing stupid things. But, but tell me a little bit about your 
reflections on where the regulators are. I know you're uh, you're in the UK, I'm in the US, but but so much of this really there, there's ripple, if, no pun intended, there's a ripple effect. And as example, just recently with, with Ripple winning their multi-year, uh, at least uh, the first part of this multi-year kind of um, fight that happened at SEC. So, so tell me about where you see the regulators going, implications on your business and life sciences, and how do you see that kind of maybe evolving? Yeah, and the regulation, of course, depends, like you were highlighting, Jim, on the jurisdiction in which you're in. Um, so, so DOC is based in Switzerland because it has a very uh, open uh, and, and fairly well-articulated um, approach to, to how cryptocurrency companies or companies with, with tokens um, can and should operate and how they should account for things. And of course, that's different uh, in every part of the world. I think what regulators are, are struggling with um, is a lot of them are not technologists. Um, and so it's difficult. And it's, of course, good that they have working groups and they try to engage with, with technology companies in, in any part of the world. I'm not specifically speaking about the US, the UK here, but just really all across the world that regulators do start to because they have to understand the technology before they try and, and regulate around it. And so, I mean, certainly what I'd be advocating for, it's a tricky thing because technology and companies are moving so fast and regulation by its nature is very slow. It's not too dissimilar from standards where, you know, it's, it can be a mistake to move very quickly and, and you know, have some unintended consequences. So, um, so I think it's a very difficult job that regulators have, um, but I think in certain parts of the world, they're doing a better job than others. And I think that anyone that overly regulates within a certain area, they potentially are going to stifle um, that whole country's approach and, and ability to, to compete within that marketplace because companies that are in that jurisdiction will, will simply move somewhere else and, and start up. And obviously all the ecosystem of funding, um, you know, educating team members, et cetera, will, it will basically you know, move over and navigate over to that part of the world. So I, I do think it's important for regulators to, to get this right, but also um, they, they need to protect people. But I think if they do it in, in a way that's, that's unclear or unhelpful, I think they will stifle innovation for that industry within their country. And I think that will make it very difficult for, for those homegrown uh, co uh, sorry, companies to compete moving forward. Yeah, yeah, you make a very, very good point. You know, I often think of this as, you know, the the law of unintended consequences. You know, this over, you know, I guess exuberance on, on regulation can, you know, inadvertently lead to, especially in, you know, in this case of, of you know, blockchain-based technologies and, and tokenization and things, to essentially drain innovation uh, from from a you know from a country, from a region, from a particular industry. You know, I mean, we, unfortunately, I think we have seen that, um, you know, in, in healthcare in general, not because of, of regulations around crypto, uh, much more so just, just in terms of, I think, under understood regulations in general, and, and frankly, a high barrier to, to entry for many startups and innovators. And then this, this kind of convenient dance of, of the cash cows wanting to, to really keep things exactly the way they are, because you know, for those few that they're, they're making, uh, you know, they're, they're doing really, really well. They're making a lot of money. And, and you know, it's, it's a it's a nice little kind of, uh, it's a pyrrhic victory, right? You know, for, for us in, in the longer term, it's a pyrrhic victory, but, but yeah, they, they certainly feel the benefits. Um, but, but, you know, that being said, uh, again, we can speak 
at length, <laughs> several many hours on, on regulations. Um, but but let's put let's you know in, in kind of closing our conversation, let's put some of these things that we've discussed. Uh, for instance, uh, the technology, what we're seeing, you know, in terms of. Uh, interoperability and, and standards associated to it, uh, some of the practical implications, organizations, as an example, and, and also the regulators. Let's kind of bring it in all into this, this picture of how do you see actually increasing adoption? Like what, what are the triggers? What are the specific things that, that you see in your world for increasing adoption of, of blockchain-based technologies, particularly in life sciences? Uh, and, and where are you optimistic with that? I think it's really, uh, there are probably a few different parts, but I think the biggest one for, for me, Jim, would be around making it usable and understood. So um, I think sometimes the industry as a whole gets very, uh, like we all love the technology and, and we could talk about it all day, but sometimes we talk about decentralization like it's a feature in, in and of itself, like like a, a big pharma business or a big healthcare company should care whether it's decentralized or centralized. The reality is that they don't. Uh, in many cases, they, they like whatever is going to get them the best margins or um, you know, be, enable them to be compliant. Um, enable them to be more profitable and that's what we need to get to so we need to start making sure that those benefits are understood um, and we also need to start making it easier to work with is another big thing so either from an individual side like how do I manage my decentralized identifiers do I need to use a wallet what's a wallet what's an app like those types of things we need to make that highly usable but also for organizations that are trying to integrate what we've built they've already got like probably millions of lines of legacy code and lots of different things. And now they have this other consideration of how do I integrate all that with these decentralized technologies? And that's still quite rough. Um, so the technologies have been very well developed and they can work well um, once you have them integrated. But that step of integrating them is, is tricky because people don't understand them as well as they understand the, the world and the technology as it stands today. Um, and, um, you know, things are maybe not as robustly built because they've not been used as many times. Documentation's maybe not quite as clear as it could be. And basically just ironing out all these bugs, it just takes time. And so I think one of the kind of bigger barriers that we see is, is enabling these systems to work much better together and to, to do so in, in a much more quick way. And like I said, it's like kind of educating people on the, uh, the real world benefits to them as an organization or to the individual those are the key things that we're probably not that good at just now. And I think those, if we can address those, I think the, the rest of it will fall into place. Like all the regulation stuff, that does need to happen. But I think those are probably the, the bigger the bigger aspects for me. Yeah, I love that, uh, Nick. I, I'm 100% with you on usability because I think end of the day, when you're dealing with actual users, like, like you've mentioned, you guys have multiple use cases. Really, they don't care. I mean, they don't care if you're using blockchain or Amazon or, or MongoDB or your homemade access database, so long as it works, so long as the functionality, you know, that they need, they want is there, it improves their lives, you know, and, and, and you are secure. You don't leak their personal information. Uh, I think uh, all of the, you know, the flowery kind of 
techie things that, that we put on, you know, is, is interesting for us, but it doesn't move the needle for them, particularly if it's an adverse experience. But I really also really love what you mentioned about integration of technologies, these new things that we're building for, if you like, the legacy applications, because, uh, you know, yeah, it's great for us to, to have wallets that maybe integrate into, you know, the latest uh, iPhone and, and iOS and things like this. But there are many applications, you know, that serve these these data sources that maybe are still built on mainframe technologies, or you know, or in, in the case of healthcare on, on mumps, you know, technology that was, you know, inefficient back in the '70s when it was developed, much less you know, 50 years later. So, so, but, but you have to deal with it. You, we can't just throw our arms up in the air and have a fit that you know this is not uh, Web three technology, right? And I think. You know, I, I know from having talked to you before that you've done a lot of work in open source and open APIs and open tech. Uh, and, and that obviously is, is one, certainly one kind of key way of uh, going about making your technologies more accessible to, to other technology developers. Um, that being said, we're just about out of time. Uh, I would love you since you're very insightful, just give me a kind of a closing, a vision of you know, maybe we're going to get together in, in five years from now. Well, where do you see things? Yeah, I would like to see things. I mean, within the uh, pharmaceuticals and supply chain side, I think it's just a, a matter of time. Like I'm, I'm obviously pretty biased, as you can probably gather, Jim. I suspect you might be yourself. But I definitely think this is a, a, a kind of a wave that can't be stopped um, because there's, there's too much investment. There's too much um, advantages um, to, to this type of technology, decentralized technology. People are now demanding that they control their own information. Entities are asking for the same, and, and rightly so. Like the, the way that we work today does not make sense. Like centralization as a concept does not make sense. And so like now the, you know, uh, Pandora's box has been opened. And I think it's just a case of, 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 making things happen and I think in five years time I'd like to see I think what we will see is a lot more large-scale production use cases happening whereas today what we probably see in the market are lots of pilots that potentially get shelved I think the reason for that is like I mentioned at the start there's regulation happening in Europe where um, EU member states there's 27 of those are legally required probably by the end of this year to provide each of their citizens with an identity wallet with in which they can they can ha have identifiers, credentials, and lots of different things. And when you have like you know half a billion people that are largely uh, very upwardly mobile, they're online. That is a very big groundswell. Um, there's a few other things happening. The US has kind of um, start to move that way with kind of driver's licenses and things. I think that will start to um, to move in that direction also. And you have large companies like LinkedIn starting to put their kind of learning programs into verifiable credentials and enabling individuals to control these online. So I think all of this groundswell is really just prepping us for in five years time, really having, you know, much greater like mass adoption, I would say, of, of technology. I think healthcare records is one that I think particularly in the US is going to take longer. The technology already exists today for that to happen. But I think the regulation and the complexity of the of the US um, frag, slightly fragmented system is going to probably slow that down a little bit. But I think you will see in other countries things like healthcare records being controlled by the individual much, much sooner. And um, so so I think exciting times there in the next five years. Yeah, now 100 percent agree with you. And again, we can speak about this 
for a long time, but I, I certainly believe that there are certain regions, um, specifically Africa, where uh, it, you know if the motivation is there to to have healthcare records quote on blockchain, that can be done well in a modern way, fast, uh, and, and adopted way way quicker than and then it's going to happen in the U.S. And I think a lot of it in the U.S. certainly there there, there are competing interests and, and conflicting interests and motivations, but but that's the topic for another day. Nick, I really enjoyed our chat. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure the audience will find this very valuable and, and look forward to a future conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Enjoy the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you.